Dog and Pony Show Audio. Hello, Chicago. It's 2008. Barack Obama is president-elect, and the Democrats will never lose another presidential election. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible. This, according to smart people, is due to two factors. Obama built a blue wall in the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and his home state of Illinois. But more than that, the demographics are in his favor. But simply, white people aren't having babies as fast as Hispanics. Majority minority states are going to increase. Younger Hispanics, a reliable demographic for the Democrats, are even more liberal than their parents. Colorado moved from a red state to a purple and was trending blue. There are fewer white people. Couple that with the perpetual battleground of Florida benefiting from this trend, and it's easy to see how the idea spread. The GOP was out of ideas. More than that, the bedrock of the Republican Party, the white working class voter, was going away. I think that Republicans have some significant problems going ahead. Flash forward to now. Democrats are underwater with rural Rust Belt voters and Hispanics. They're cruising for a brutal midterm in 2022. The blue wall has trended redder and redder, and Western states they counted on are now massive battlegrounds where they might lose statewide Senate seat races. Why did the Democrats believe in the permanent majority? What happened and where are we now? For Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is Politics, Politics, Politics. I'm Justin Robert Young. It all begins in 2002. George W. Bush is so popular after 9-11 that Republicans gain seats in the midterm election. And it's in that year that a very influential book is written, buoying the hopes of very, very, very sad Democrats. The emerging Democratic majority took note of the demographic change pulsing through the country and boldly predicted that the Democratic Party was poised to dominate American politics for the foreseeable future. Quote the book. Over the next decade, this block of voters is expected to continue to increase and extrapolating from recent trends could make up nearly a quarter of the electorate. If these voters remain solidly Democratic, they will constitute a formidable advantage for any Democratic candidate. Democrats could suffer from an embarrassment of political riches. The white working class voters are so central to the ability of Republicans to win an election that is potentially winnable for them. Look, in any election, when the economy is this bad and you're the challenger party, you should have an excellent chance of winning. But the fact of the matter is that if you look at the underlying demographics of their support, this is entirely dependent to some extent on their ability to run up not just majorities, but large supermajorities of the white working class vote, as I mentioned. That's one of the authors of that book, Rui Teixeira. Six years after that book comes out, he's a prophet. Obama was a sign that everything Rui forewarned was coming true. Pay more attention to the cities 
minorities, and the college educated. The white working class without a college degree, well, they're slowly fading. And with it, the Republican Party could fade alongside it. The future, a very smart 2009 liberal would bemuse while changing discs of his lost DVD box set, will probably look more like Europe. The Democratic Party might even split into a few different parties that represent the best intentions for our country. Maybe a progressive wing, the socialist wing, and the center. As for the Republicans, well, they'll just be one of those far-right reactionary parties that can play in the South and nowhere else. George W. Bush will almost assuredly be the last president they ever put into the White House, and we will return to the sustained Democratic dominance in the House that we saw through the 20th century right up until the 90s. The Senate might take a bit longer, but it will soon render Republicans irrelevant. The victim of a changing tide. So, before we go any further, let's go ahead and look at what the coalition described in the emerging uh, Democratic majority is talking about. First, bank on the idea that white voters will not be the majority in key states for long because of rising minority, and we're even going to put a finer point on it for this particular essay, Hispanic voters. Second, understand that high school dropouts and voters without a college degree are shrinking. Third, both of those demographics are increasingly flocking to cities and not the suburbs like their parents did. So let's begin with the first leg the rise of non-white voters. In 1980, 25% of the children in this country were minorities. And right now, 2014, it's 26%. But by 2060, it's going to be 65% of the children are going to be non-white. Are there policy implications for having that many children people under the age of 18 who are of color? Oh, I think that there are extraordinary implications in terms of schooling, in terms of workforce preparation, um, marketing, and the like. That is the late Gwen Eiffel on PBS NewsHour talking to Carolyn Bowman of the American Enterprise Institute about the rise of non-white children as a percentage of the American population. From a presidential election perspective, the immediate implication of a rise in minority population for Democrats would be to solidify states that are already in Democratic hands like California, New York, and Colorado, change battleground states like Nevada, Arizona, and Florida from purple to blue, and then, of course, the great white whale for the modern Democratic Party, Texas. The Lone Star State as a majority-minority state could fundamentally reshape the electoral map permanently. Now, in the 2024 version of this, so if you go to 270towin.com, that's where you can model out various different electoral map outcomes. If you flip all those states that I mentioned, you 
can leave the great blue wall of the Midwest alone and the Democrats still win 296 electoral votes. That's pretty tasty. Okay, this says Florida is too close to call. Okay, no, no, it says too early to call. There's only 1% in. You know what, I'm gonna go ahead and call it. Florida's going blue to Latinos. To Latinos! (laughs) So, whatever happened in those swing states? Well, Nevada swung to Obama bigly in 2008 with a 13% margin. But by 2022, it has dwindled down to two and a half. McCain swung his home state in Arizona by 9% in 2008, and Republicans have owned it by a narrow margin until 2020 when Biden won it by less than a percentage point. In the forever contested Sunshine State, Obama won by two points in 2008, less than a point in 2012. Trump won it by 1% in 2016 and 3% in 2020. But what's mostly troubling about Florida is that, indeed, demographics have gone the way that the book said it would. There are more Hispanic voters in Florida than there were at the beginning of the century. And yet, Biden, in the most populous and diverse county in Florida, Miami-Dade, only beat Trump by 8% in a county where Obama won by 18 in 2008. And as for Texas, which, by the way, let me bring you back to that fateful plane ride back in 2016 when Hillary Clinton thought she was cruising to a victory over Donald Trump, the one in which the Clinton campaign was briefing reporters giving them the, the the news that since they were so sure they were going to win everywhere that they needed to they were now going to start adding campaign stops in Texas and then of course as they began to land we found out that the investigation into Anthony Weiner's laptop had reopened the email investigation blah 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 but just to just to give you a sense 2016, we are still talking about flipping Texas. The gap narrowed somewhat from 2018 to 2020 or to 2022, but Trump's 8% win in 2020 is probably enough to delay any wild hopes for a math-shattering game changer. But again, the demographics have gone the way that that book suggested. So what happened? Why, and we're going to specifically circle Hispanics here, are Hispanics not responding to Democrats in the same way they were projected to? Well, there's a lot of guesses, culture war issues, tone deaf labels like Latinx, Joe Biden playing Despacito from his iPhone. But at the heart of it is the fact that Democrats still largely treat the very diverse and growing Spanish-speaking voting bloc like a monolith that can be animated by very specific issues. Using one-size-fits-all issues like immigration instead of tailoring messages about kitchen table issues like the economy and healthcare, but you know, en espanol. It's what Trump actually did fairly successfully in 2020. Oh, 
Now, the visuals to this ad cycle through quick clips of various members of the Hispanic coalition in popular settings, understanding that they are not all one. So you see a Cuban family dancing on the waterfront, a crowd of Colombian national soccer team fans, and then a Mexican street fair. Before spending the rest of the ad showing smiling stock footage of Latino families playing with young kids. And of course, Donald Trump doing his weird arm dance. The Spanish language lyrics highlighting the economy, a good life, and family. Also, it's a bop. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. The man who made that salsa ad is Giancarlo Sopo. He ran Trump's Latino advertising in 2020. This week, he did a very interesting tweet thread about Biden's numbers with Hispanic voters. In 2020, Biden underperformed with Latinos, but still won 60% of them. Today, he stands at 40%. Several polls have shown that Biden is more popular with white voters than Hispanic voters, something that simply cannot stand if the demographic trends that you have believed would bring you a permanent majority are indeed coming true. But let's go back to that Trump ad. It's not a dour warning about migrants being rounded up at the border. In fact, structurally, you could do that exact same ad for white working class voters in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan by putting those same lyrics in English in a country song while showing Midwestern families at a Big Ten football game, hunting, playing cornhole, you know, just Midwestern white people things. To put it simply, Latinos, they're just like us. In fact, let's talk about that white working class vote and the blue wall. People may not always agree with my rhetoric, but I think unfortunately our country is kind of a joke. J.D. Vance left Ohio for San Francisco to make millions and invest in companies that profit from globalization and free trade. He became a celebrity, CNN analyst, and a big hit at Washington cocktail parties. Now, Vance says, he feels out of place in Ohio, and he wants to represent you in the Senate. What a joke. I'm Tim Ryan, and I approve this message. That is Tim Ryan, a 2024 candidate for Senate. And that ad I just played is from this week. It's very, very recent. Most of you folks have probably heard of Tim Ryan because you're smart and you listen to this podcast. But do me a favor. If you want to do a little field research, I want you to find somebody that you know and play that ad for them. People may not always agree with you can even tell them that visually the ad is shot in a normal looking diner. Ohio. 
for San Francisco to make So I'm gonna give you some time. You can go ahead and you find somebody. I'm sure you just you're, you're in your kitchen. You're, you can ask your wife or girlfriend or kid or something like that. So go ahead, just you know, remind a little bit. Like beep 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 beep. Put it on speaker. There you go. Represent you in the Senate. Now after they're done, ask them one question. Which party is Tim Ryan representing in his fight for the Senate? My guess is that they're going to have a hard time picking out that Tim Ryan is indeed a Democrat. Because ads that tend to attack their opponents as being out of touch San Francisco media darlings with DC friends are normally the kind of things that Republicans say in a television ad. What's more is you don't hear a lot about how hard the Senator Ryan would fight to implement Joe Biden's agenda or protect or expand Obamacare. Nothing about a woman's right to choose and nothing about strengthening unions. All hallmarks of Democratic campaigns that tap into the rich brand value of running in one of the two major parties. The reason why Tim Ryan has released an ad that might as well put him in the Republican class is that since 2008, the Democrats took very seriously the warnings that the white working class was receding, and they all but punted them out of the blue coalition. Much like the barely there appeals to Hispanics, every once in a while you'd see John Kerry pretending to hunt or Hillary Clinton taking a shot in a Pennsylvania bar. But there really hasn't been a lot of substance to the white working class voter. Because why? They're the past. They're going away soon. Even worse is the fatalism for blue collar workers. For those folks who've lost their job right now because a plant went down to Mexico, you know, that isn't going to make you feel better. And so what we have to do is to make sure that folks are trained for the jobs that are coming in now because some of those jobs of the past are just not going to come back. And when somebody says, like the person you just mentioned, who I'm not going to advertise for, that he's going to bring all these jobs back. Well, how exactly are you going to do that? What are you going to do? There's, the, there's no answer to it. He just says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to negotiate a better deal. Well, how, what, how exactly are you going to negotiate that? What magic wand do you have? And usually the answer is he doesn't have an answer. That is then-President Obama in 2016. The person that he's not going to advertise for is obviously Trump. The message? Outsourcing of your jobs in the Midwest was inevitable. Outsourcing of your jobs in the Midwest is permanent. Life moves on. Take whatever job you can get because pining for the past will not bring you any closer to it. For however much you disagree or agree with those statements, we can all understand that they're not exactly empathetic. 
In fact, if you disagree with what he said, they're downright cruel. It's even more cruel when you think about the kind of jobs that were lost in the Midwest. Union jobs. If union workers are supposed to be bedrock Democrats, then can't Democratic politicians at least pretend to care? Not just hand wave away generational pain? The results for the Democrats in the Midwest since 2008 have been startling. In 08, Obama won the Rust Belt states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania by a combined margin of victory of 65%. So what I'm doing here is I'm taking, you know, uh, all those states, all of them that he won, adding up all the, the margin of victory, right? So we have 65 is his number in 2008. At that point, it was dubbed the Blue Wall and largely held up four years later, but with a slightly smaller margin of victory. Then 2016 hits. Trump wins all but Minnesota and Illinois, and his combined margin of victory, so even subtracting for the ones that Clinton won, is 19.6%. In 2020, Biden wins Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania back from Trump. But they are by such razor-thin margins that if we go by our combined margin of victory, Trump still wins by 3.6% thanks to a larger-than-normal victory in Ohio. Let me tell you, I was in Ohio a couple weeks ago. I am going to Pennsylvania next week. Let me tell you that when you get out of the cities... It does not take long for things to become Trump country. He has a connection to those voters. And I believe that it's largely because he's at least shown some level of empathy. When he talks about China, China, China and trade deals and uh, we got to bring manufacturing back, whether or not you think that's possible, we can all agree it's at least empathetic. But then again, come on, come on. If you believe in the permanent demographic majority, then look, it's not right to say, okay, but the white working class voters without a college degree, you know, cry about it. Right? Let them pout. Right? There aren't going to be enough of them to make a difference soon. They're a dying breed. I mean, that's a fine stance to take when you're winning. It looks a lot less cute when the Rust Belt is deciding elections. Which means now, all of a sudden, Democrats care about the white working class voter again. Hence the Ryan ad that we played at the beginning of this segment. There's a reason that that ad looks like it's shot in a Mansfield, Ohio diner and not a barcade in Columbus or a gastropub in Cleveland. Democrats in tight races cannot afford to pretend that the white working class voters are a nuisance which will soon resolve itself. 
All the factory workers aren't going to start Etsy shops. They don't want to get a student loan, move to the city, and get a degree. And there is one man amongst the chaos that's been screaming to Democrats that they shouldn't act like they will. In fact, there's one man who's saying that all the lessons Democrats thought they learned from the permanent Democrat majority theory are wrong. The same man who wrote the book about the permanent Democratic majority, Rui Teixeira. And what we saw, interestingly enough, I think in 2020, was sort of the apotheosis of what I think of as a bowdlerization of our thesis from 2002, which is now we're thinking of all non-whites as people of color who uh, share all these common interests because they're oppressed by a system of white supremacy and structural racism. And the bigger a deal we make out of this, the more it will weld these people of color together right. in a massive, unshakable coalition against the Republicans. And that did not turn out to be true. Actually, uh, Biden did worse than Clinton did among non-whites, particularly among Hispanics, particularly among Hispanic working class voters. And in fact, uh, it did not turn out to be the case that sort of doubling and redoubling your effort to betray uh, the country as a cesspool of racism that oppresses people of color actually moved uh, these people in your direction. That is Teixeira on the Charlie Sykes podcast this year. He went further in a New York Times interview that came out the same month. Quote, Rui, even on this raw demographics basis, it's not crazy that the natural popular vote Democratic majority in this country. However, that does not automatically translate to political power. We very specifically said, and this is widely ignored, that for this majority to attain and exercise political power, you have to retain a significant fraction of the white working class. The country was changing but it wasn't changing that fast. What's more is that the concept of high population cities that would be enough to power statewide races uh, that the Democrats could afford to hyper tailor messages specifically to cities and virtually ignore rural areas has also proven to be faulty. Specifically post-COVID, which appears to be a bit of a uno reverse card to the rush to live in these high-density zones, a trend that was absolutely undeniable in the tens and, and knots. But there is one demographic that pretty much exclusively lives in cities. And they all kind of have the same friends, and they mostly read the same books and go to see the same movies, and they're all kind of friends on Twitter, and they went to the same colleges that are largely prestigious or private institutions in the Northeast. And that is the Democratic Party's managerial class. Quote Rui. What we didn't anticipate was the eventual effect of the professional class hegemony in the Democratic Party. That it would tilt the Democrats so far to the left on socio-cultural issues that it would actually make the Democratic Party significantly unattractive to working class voters. It's a huge liability for the Democrats because the people who staff the party, the people who staff the think tanks, the advocacy groups, the foundations, the staffers, they're all singing from the same hymnal to some extent. 
They live in this liberal cultural bubble, particularly the younger members. End quote. I'm going to uh, uh, repeat a uh, uh, a story that that I, I've told on the podcast before, but it, it's worth saying here. So I'm in D.C. Uh, after we covered the Virginia race, the Glenn Youngkin race, and so I decide I'm I'm just walking around, you know, the the, the Capitol. I got a a hotel down by the White House and. So I'm just kind of walking around and I decide, you want to know what? This is something I, I've not been to D.C. as a working journalist before. What I want to do is I want to go to a bar at about two o'clock and I, I want to get some lunch. I'll have a drink and I'll just kind of see the vibe. Almost on cue, as if this were a party thrown for me, the kind of DC creature for which I would imagine in my head lives at a bar at two o'clock in the afternoon, comes trundling in. And he is a delight. He is a a very, very uh, uh, erudite old Irish dude who's got a bright red nose and has worked in democratic politics for decades. This man drains no less than five, count them, five screwdrivers during his hour that he is on his lunch break before he has to return to his job. One of the things that he says is the exact same point that Rui makes here in the New York Times, that the younger set of staffers for the Democratic Party have drawn things far more left than some of the veteran members of the Democratic Party would be comfortable with. And yet, if you want to keep your job, you hope that you are not the latest dinosaur to get hunted. So, the vets like to stick together. So one day, he's puttering about, and another old Democratic Party veteran comes up to him, and he says, uh, Hey, man, um... Do you know what intersectionality is? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, when all these other groups, you know, you can bind together all the groups. And the Democratic veteran goes, oh, oh, oh. So it's not a sofa. <laughs> and he told me that story in a way that it is obviously a funny thing. I don't think he was joking. I honestly don't. By the way, uh, uh, Rui goes on to uh, cite the 2020 primary topics of compassion on the southern border uh, with, with migrants and police reform as being reasonably read by working class voters as open borders and soft on crime. Lessons that the numbers and political results should have told anybody involved in any of these campaigns is simply not popular. And it's specifically not popular by the white working class voters that uh, are being repelled from the party, nor do those topics particularly net the party anybody who wasn't already going to vote for them. 
I should also mention here that Tekshera currently does a Substack entitled The Liberal Patriot. I subscribe to it. I find it very good. Look, it boils down to this. For those that believe the idea that demographics would carry the day in the Democratic Party, I think it's safe to say that entitlement crept in. Much in the same way that entitlement led the Republicans to be vulnerable to power shifts to both the Tea Party movement and Trump. Demographics will always change. And maybe some demographic changes give one party a bit of a head start over the other. But every change gives smart parties and smart candidates a new opportunity to fight for votes. Because the scariest picture, the scariest vision that the Democrats could have based on that book back in 2002 is that it does come true. And indeed, all these demographics begin to supersede all these other demographics. But instead of it being to your favor, it is to your detriment. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This show was edited by Brett Stewart. If you'd like to email the show, you can do so, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. My Twitter is at px3tweets. You can find me live on Twitch, px3live.com. You can share this podcast with your friends and family and clergy at px3podcast.com. Find my merch at politicsmerch.com. If you'd like to support me with a one-time donation, you can do so at paypal.me slash payjury. My Venmo is justin-young-20, and my cash app is px3cash. Figure out if virtual money is real money. Test it out. Send me a dollar. I'll let you know next week. Of course, if you have anything physical you'd like to send me, send it to Justin Young at P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule and our $10 tier gets your name read at each and every podcast like these fine folks Vigard, Alexis, Neil of Neils, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Level, Katie, Double K Ranch, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John, DP4 Bongo, Neemeister, Nick's Horseless Diner, No Horses Ever, Catherine, Persons Familiar with the Matter, and Vote for Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, 100 Mile Runner, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Start, Dr. G, Headphones, Neil, Charles, Darren, Alex, the owner of Stronger Now Gym in Atlanta, Idris Arslandian, Blue Front and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana, Shrill Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Redneck Tech is awesome. David, Brad, Richard, D-Lazy, D-Lazy, D-Laser, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank Got Abducted. Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Gen, Adam L, D-Really, Chopper, J-Pink, Andrew, and Josh. You want to join the ranks? 
Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. It's going to be a scorcher down here deep in the heart of Texas over the next week. I hope everybody has a uh, good time. Watch the Kentucky Derby, sip a mint julep. I'll be back at you for patrons on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show where we break down all of the uh, all of the, the Sunday shows. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this is the only show that dares discuss. Dog and Pony Show Audio.